I'm like, oh, I forgot to breathe it. Um, but basically, the philosophy building at Harvard, um, what it was is when the actual building was being constructed, the president of Harvard at the time asked the professor of philosophy, what would you like to be inscribed upon the building? And what the pre professor of philosophy wanted inscribed upon the building was, man is the measure of all things, which is basically the humanistic mantra, like just that man is, and all things are measured by him. And so he actually never heard back from the president, so I guess he probably assumed that his request was actually what was going to happen. But the day that the, um, the actual kind of the, the fabric and the things that were concealing it came down, nobody actually knew it until it came down that it, instead it was Psalm 8. Is what is man that thou art mindful of him? It's, and Psalm 8 is one of the most beautiful, really, worship passages in the Bible. It really is, you can get that. Thank you so much, Noah. Yeah. It really is one of the most beautiful worship, worship passages in the Bible because, and the reason I love it, it's a declaration of the majesty and the splendor of who God is. But it also declares that what is man, you have set him yeah. a little lower than the angels. It's actually talking about the authority that God has entrusted to man and the authority to rule and reign and govern the earth with God. So, I mean, it speaks to the splendor and the majesty of him, but it also speaks to our role in the dignity of humanity in partnering with him. Um, but really, our, our posture in faith, even concerning that building, what you really know, have to understand is us standing there. It's a declaration that the word of God has triumphed over humanism. That even that building itself, where he wanted man is the measure of all things, that didn't prevail. But what did prevail is Psalm 8 prevailed, that what is man that thou art mindful of him. And it's a declaration of worship, really. It's adoration of saying, you are the most high God. You set the moon and the stars in place, and you are mindful of man. And really our posture there is believing that God is going to raise up a worship movement that it's a worship movement that will prevail over humanism. It's not a battling of intellect or reason or c conversing. And that's part of the reason when we go to Harvard St Square that we feel like the greatest weapon in the place of the spirit is worship. Because we come not in a posture of engaging people in the realm of the intellect, but we come with a posture of adoration of Jesus, you are worthy and take your rightful place amongst us. Um, so that kind of gives you an understanding of the prayer walks. And I'm thrilled that Crystal's doing them. It's actually been an angst in my heart ever since I have not been able to do them ever since I moved out of this house, just with the logistics of schedules of prayer sets here and my other obligations for meetings. And so it's always been an angst in my heart of prayer walks need to be happening at the philosophy building. Um, and just haven't been able to make it happen. And as her and I were having a meeting about areas um, that she wanted to get involved and take more responsibility, she said, I want to do prayer walks. <laughs> and I've really never verbalized the pain in my heart to anybody. So I went, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so, and I really believe the Lord's going to use it. I believe that he uses prayer, and I believe that he uses faithfulness. And so I think that as there's a company of people that are faithful to do that, that the Lord's going to use it. So Sunday, last Sunday, we went out to Harvard Square, and we kind of just set up our, our church service in the middle of Harvard Square and uh, led worship out there. Is there anybody that wants to share a testimony? I know Noah talked to several. Every time I turned around, Noah was talking to a new person. <laughs> I was just like, if you, for those of you that don't know, Noah is so relational. He can connect with a tree. Like, <laughs> get the tree to... <laughs> well, get the tree to talk back, too. <laughs> so if you're wondering for tips of comfortability on like how to uh, engage a stranger, talk to Noah. <laughs> but Noah, do you have any testimonies you want to share? 
connect to a tree. I used to do tree work, right? <laughs> and usually people walk away from me when I start talking like, you know, like what are you talking about? And, and that's a, I want to be a source of encouragement, if anything else, because you know what? In the reality of it all, just like we saw with Chelsea last night, is that you're called to just sow seeds. You know what I mean? It's some sow, some water, and God causes it to grow. So what we're out there to do is just basically provide availability to God, to, for God to do what we're asking Him to do in the place of prayer, and that's administer His heart to people. What better way than using your own life as the conduit for that? So anyways, you know, uh, I didn't see any dramatic salvation, but what I did see was people were open, and they were hungry. There's a lot of rejection, and that's going to happen, right? We're going to give ourselves to the place of allowing ourselves to be maybe even humiliated, you know what I mean? For that two seconds, that person you might never see again. But just to strike up a conversation, talk to them, you know what? In the long run, it really is not a big deal if we step back and think about it. And, um, yeah, I just saw a few different... People in that time were, were hungry, and they were asking for what truth was, what we believe were truth, what truth was. Some lady said, can you pray for me um, that I have two, one heavenly type prayer and one earthly type prayer. And she said something like, you know, that God would show me what the afterlife is, and, you know, and the truth to happiness in the afterlife for me and my family. And I said, well, I'm definitely going to pray for that, but I can tell you, too, what the Word says. And, uh, you know, it's just that kind of posture. There's so many different ideas out there. And, and we, need to, we need to trust and believe that the gospel really is the power to salvation. It's the simple communication of the testimony of Jesus has enough power to go past our little weak words, our little weak ability to communicate, to save a soul, to bring life. Because, you know what? Some of the best communicators and some of the best, some, you know, some of the, it's just about the testimony of Jesus causing the heart to come alive. And uh, just encourage you guys to step out and do it. And Amen. That's what's going to be fruitful. Amen. Um, you know, I know Crystal, a girl approached Crystal. She was in Harvard Yard, and she has an awareness of Jesus, knows of Jesus, has an understanding of faith. She was in Harvard Yard, and she heard the music. So she came. Oh, that was a baby. wasn't me. <laughs> um, she, <laughs> she came seeking to hear where, the music, hear where the music was coming from because she could. And she was talking about the clarity of it. That even, like, being in the yard, being able to hear the words and things like that. And just so you guys understand, too, like, a lot of my heart, even in our posture, like Noah said, I'm not, like, always looking for, like, the big bang results. I think one day we're all going to be surprised. There's going to come an accumulation, and the bowls of heaven have been filled. There's going to be an overflow, and we are going to see Book of Acts. But, you know, until that time, <laughs> until we do see the manifestation of that, there's a place of being faithful stewards and being faithful just to declare what's captured our heart and the man Christ Jesus and our experience. But second to that, I, this is what I want to say, is that we are living in a culture that ex ex increasingly is making people of faith feel as though it's a personal, private issue and keep it to yourself. We're even living in a culture that wants to push it from the, from the public square. And so I feel as though even as a community, it's our place of saying we do live in a nation at this point where there is freedom. And we want to worship God in the public place where he's worthy to be sought. And I think even what it does is it pushes those boundaries of almost like that, that voice that wants to say, don't say the name of Jesus in public. Don't profess your face. Don't infringe upon other people. It's us saying, no, no, it is a public faith. And it is nothing absolutely to be ashamed of. And I think it's an act of intercession. Um, I think it's for multiple reasons it's important to me. But um, I think we're doing more than we're even really aware of right. when we're standing in that place. Um, and second to that, I was saying to Crystal in the car today, 
is that um, it, under the age of 21 in America, it's 4% of the population under 21 that attends church in America. I mean, it, this is an unreached generation. 4% attend church, and now all of you guys have this understanding. Attending church does not even mean that they're walking in a way that is honoring the Lord or even seeking to honor the Lord. It just means that their, their body is there. So it's a, it, that's a, probably a whole percentage or two less of people that have actually had a life-changing encounter and it's altered their priorities and their decision-making. Um, so with that said, you have to understand that when we go to a public square and in a college setting like this, when people see other people of faith, the encouragement is that it is to their heart, the way that it, it, it blesses them. And, and so anyway, I think, I think on several fronts, it's honoring the Lord and it's our posture that we need to be faithful to stand. Jenna, I'm happy to see you. I'm sorry, I just, <laughs> I, I thought you were home. <laughs> You're here. It's good to see you. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to take some time. Um, so the last time that Noah taught, he did Acts 6 and 7, so it's actually been a couple weeks gap before we've been in Acts. So we're going to pick up with um, Acts, I don't know if we're going to get to 10, but definitely Acts 8 and 9 we're going to cover today. Um, and we'll see if we get to 10. That would be interesting if we did get there. Um, so just to recap, for those of you that weren't here when Noah taught, I wasn't here, didn't hear it, so I don't know exactly what he covered, but overall, a summary of chapter, like, basically verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 7, verse 60. Basically, Stephen's life is highlighted. It's Stephen. So I'm sure he talked about Stephen somewhere in there. Um, so I'm not even going to get into detail about Stephen's life, but one thing that I do want to say is that in this chapter... God is highlighting Stephen's life. Yeah. It's God himself putting Stephen on display. It's God himself endorsing an individual. And if I want to say anything to us as a younger generation, we live in a church culture presently. And I don't know what it was like years ago or because I didn't live then. So all I know is what we experience now. And all I can say is we rarely, rarely, rarely rarely in church culture now see men and women that God himself is endorsing. Instead, we find men and women that endorse themselves. And this is what I want to say, is that it, it's Stephen's life, it wasn't him writing a book about himself, it wasn't him making a way for himself, it wasn't, and the reason that I honor this so much is when you read about the revivalists of old, this is extraordinary. How many, is it, I think it's Whitfield. Was it, yeah, it was Whitfield that basically said that he would open up the newspaper and he would read accounts about himself. And he would read about how God was using him in the revivals. And what he said is he intentionally, this is amazing. He said, I intentionally would never save the clippings of what was being said of me. Because what it ended up doing is feeding my pride and ego as if somehow it was me. And he said instead he actually would throw it away and he would say, Old, uh, old things have passed away, and even tomorrow I'm choosing to forget. And I'm pressing into a new place today and not going to even cling to my successes or my failures of yesterday. And really, and I'm going to be very honest with you. It, for those of you that might, and there might be some people here, that have a little bit of a, a, a maybe even a frustration with J-Hop and the fact that I've never gone hard to like build something. Like, I'm not really good at like advertising, endorsing, promoting. Like, it's, I don't really have that drive in me. To be honest with you, I think that there's a place for it. Like, we printed up cards. You know, we've developed over the years. Here we now have a card. <laughs> but I'm going to be honest with you. Part of that in me is, is the resistance to say, God, it's so easy 
to build a business. It's easy. It's so easy. It's so easy to fill a room with people. I'm going to be honest with you. Easy. Anyone can do it. You don't need anointing. You don't need the presence of God. You just need to know how to relate. You need to know how to network. I mean, be honest with you. You, you could network in this city. I mean, there's, there's pastors and leaders meetings every day of the week going on. I mean, all of those things. You can build something in your own strength. So part of my um, inability or lack of that kind of push has been my intentional of saying, I desperately want something that can only come by the hand of God. And hear me. I understand that there's a maturity in the balance of longing for the pure and the genuine and then still having administrative excellence and functioning like a functional ministry. <laughs> like, I get that. Like, I get that there's a, there's a balance there in that tension. But really, for anybody here that's kind of like, why doesn't she drive this, push this, pump this, do you know, program? And it's true. We, we could do it. But my, my, my angst and even my greatest concern is I want that which can come from the hand of God. And I don't want to stand at the end of the day going, I built it. I worked hard, I labored hard, I toiled, I did it, I endorsed it, I made every networking meeting, I went to every pastoral, you know, I was in there and I fought. No, I want to stand back and I want to say, that was the doing of the Holy Spirit, him and him alone. And really, that's what we see in Peter's life. That's what we see, is we see a man that didn't get up his card of, I'm the apostle, or actually he was a newly found deacon, I'm, a, I'm the new deacon on the block. Like, I'm the new deacon. Come follow me. Come do my... And that's what we actually find in American culture. Is, and actually, um, for those of you that got to meet uh, Mamdur, Rayad, Sarah's dad, one of the reasons that he's one of my dearest friends is there's been a few times that we've gotten a pull in different directions, and I've, I've just said, you know, should we? And I'm getting pressure to do this, and from New England national things. And he's even, he said to me, Bethany... Certain things just reek of self-promotion. And I'm like, thank you. Like, he has such a pure heart of do not in any way be pressured to do self-endorsement or promotion of J-Hop. And that, it's that pure heart that I just, I, I breathe a breath of fresh air going, thank you. Like, that is my heart and that's what I want. <coughs> and having someone encourage us in that direction. And this is what I want to say is Peter's life, he was endorsed by God. I mean, you want to be able to stand back and know that it's not because you pummeled Facebook with all your videos of you and what you're doing and how cool you are and, you know, you quoted it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm actually embarrassed sometimes when I'm like, that person just quoted what somebody said about them, their compliment, and just told us all, like, wow! You know, <laughs> I'm just like, wow! <laughs> that's embarrassing! <laughs> but that's really what it comes to, is shouting from the rooftops. Someone complimented me in private. I'm going to let you all know. I'm going to tell you what the compliment was so that you can praise me as well. I mean, weird and frightening, but that is the culture that we live in. That is the culture that we live in. And when you look at Stephen, it was, there's undeniably, when, when basically God himself takes a whole chapter to highlight someone. How many of you guys know the story of David Brainerd? He was an, intercess he was an intercessor here in New England. The extraordinary thing about David Brainerd is he had no public ministry, he was not famous. He was not out working the circuit, working the system, doing his deal. He was a man that literally sowed his life in the places of intercession. It is said of David Brainerd that when he would labor in prayer, that literally sweats and drops of blood would come from him because of the angst and the agony in the place yeah. of prayer. He was completely unknown yeah. to the public. An unknown man. 
He did not endorse himself. But you know what happened was? After he died, someone found his diary. And finding his diary, he is now known as one of the premier, at most, really, revivalists. Because of the anointing and the... He provokes multitudes all over the earth to this day. Even though in his life, he did nothing to put his life on display. That is extraordinary. That is the hand of God saying, this one right here, you know what? I don't need you to promote yourself. I don't need you to build a name for yourself. I don't need you to network. I don't need you to... What I need is I need you to get low, get before me, and then God says, in my time and in my way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put your life on display completely. I'm sure David Brainerd's in heaven and he knows his life is on display now. But you think about in his life, it was never unto something. It was never unto his success or it was never unto building his ministry. See, that's where the whole issue of mixed motive comes in, is when it's unto, I'm building a movement, I'm building an organization, I'm building a... It was unto, his life was completely laid down in the place of intercession. And it was the hand of God that chose to endorse him. Do you guys know that they speculate that Oswald Chambers, hello, like who doesn't read Oswald Chambers? My utmost for his highest? I mean, it provokes people across the globe. I mean, you read a couple of chapters of that thing, and it's like searing to the core. Like, your very motives in your heart, you're going, oh my gosh. Like, few words. Very few words the man has to use. It's scripture, it's word, it's power. But you know what's actually said of him? He lived a completely obscure life. No one even knew about him. Like, he, didn't, he literally didn't walk down the road and glory all over and everybody fell out. No one knew who Oswald Chambers was. And he's another one. After he passes, somebody gets a hold of his diary and goes, for real? Like, you had this amount of understanding of the word of God? Yeah. Like, he, it's not like he was out building it publicly. You know what he was doing? He was building it inwardly. And then the Holy Spirit, in his, in his perfect timing. Um, but anyway, so he puts, this is it. I mean, Stephen's life is on display. And this is to say, this is a lesson. I believe this is a lesson to all of us that we posture our life in the way that Stephen did, is that let God endorse you. Let God build your platform. Let God highlight your life in the time, in the way, how he desires, and it'll be far more effective and far more powerful than anything you yourself could actually accomplish. Um, So that's chapter 6 and 7. Okay, we covered that. (laughs) Actually, um... I do just want to mention <laughs> babies everywhere. Like, <laughs> um, I do want to mention, actually, for any of you that have a hard time understanding the Old Testament, I highly encourage you, look at chapter 7. It's pretty much like a summary of the Old Testament. If you just need like a quick overview, like I don't get the timeline, I don't get when it happened, how it happened, read chapter 7. It'll give you a very clear, concise understanding of the Old Testament. Um, but what we're going to do is actually the latter part of chapter 7 and verse 60 is actually, I'm sure, Noah, did you get to 60 last week, uh, Stephen's martyrdom? Uh, that's where we stopped. Okay, so that's what we'll pick up. <laughs> um, so cha- uh, verse 60 is actually where Stephen, he was the first martyr. And this is actually where Saul of Tarsus is introduced. Basically, when we talk about the issue of martyrdom, how many of you are very aware that in Muslim culture, martyrdom is glorified. 
So I'm just going to say this, that as Christians, when we discuss martyrdom, we're not doing it in the sense of, wouldn't it be cool to be a martyr because it's just so extreme? Because that really is the nature of Islam and, and, and the Muslims. It's the extreme, and it shows devotion, ultimately. It, that's, that's where it comes from. Um, but really, what our context, when we talk about martyrdom, is based on Revelations 12.11. How many of you guys are familiar with Revelations 12.11? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, loving not their lives even unto the death. And really what that speaks is it's all an issue of love. See, for every single one of us, and God forbid we ever come to a, a time or a season in history that we ourselves experience persecution to that measure. But I think we would all love to think that we would have such devotion to Jesus Christ that we would not deny his name, even if it means martyrdom. But this is what I want to say, and this is what we see in, in Stephen's life, and this is what we understand from martyrdom from Scripture, is that if we're not living with that kind of love awakened in our hearts in our daily life, you can never expect in the point of choosing between life and death that your choice would be to lay down your life for Jesus. Because really, ultimately, all martyrdom is, is it's the end result of a life that was lived in love for Jesus Christ. It's the, it really what it is, it's a manifestation of a life saying, I lived my life completely and utterly abandoned. I have no life outside of him. There is no life outside of him. So it's almost like it's the most natural outcome is to willingly choose that rather than kind of in your point of decision of whether to deny Jesus or not to deny Jesus, that there's going to be some kind of a mental, there will be such a heart response of love, like it says, that they, they did not love their lives even unto the death. That love, a, a, a life of love before Jesus is what brings them to that place. And so it really is an issue of love. And really in our modern culture to even discuss the, the issue of martyrdom it's such a distant, distant, but not only distant, it's foreign. It's just a foreign, foreign, because obviously in our American understanding, we would never be faced with that. We would never be faced with, will we be loyal to Jesus or loyal to man? Or would we, if someone told us not to preach Jesus? See, in our culture even, right now when restrictions are put upon the church, we all just go, okay, another, another rule, another boundary that I'm supposed to abide by. We, we just keep backing up. You know, recently they basically said that pastors cannot, even from a biblical stance, even if it's just Bible you're quoting, in any way say anything that would be discriminatory toward a homosexual. Which basically means there's several passages of the Bible you can't say out loud in church. <laughs> I mean, those are the, so the more that we go, okay, that's another rule. Instead of pastors saying, I'm sorry, no, my loyalty is to the word of God, and I would, will not compromise no matter what the consequence and see, it's in this place that we must be loyal in life, and we must live that place of love in life, and then that place of martyrdom ultimately is just a byproduct. But if you guys want to turn to um, chapter 8 of Acts. I turned on the AC. Is everybody extremely warm? I'm warm, but the AC is on. It's just not. Okay. Chapter 8. Um, so basically what we find, we had just finished, and this is where um, the martyrdom, which is profound. I mean, verse 60 is literally saying, as he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
And when he said this, he fell asleep. I mean, Peter, I mean, Stephen was stoned to death. I don't know even how many of us understand, I mean, for him to be stoned, that literally the amount of people hurling rocks at this man, he was basically buried alive. I mean, it, that's really what it comes down to. Is, and even in biblical times, if you study um, stoning, sometimes it was almost like it, you could actually go there weeks, months, years later, and a pile of rocks would be covered because that's where the person was stoned. But oftentimes, the very just breaking of bones, the amount of pain that they were enduring in the midst of that, I mean, oftentimes you can't even run to escape because your legs have been so wounded from boulders being thrown at you. I mean, it's an excruciating, painful, tormenting way to die. And in the midst of it, see, this is what I love. You know, sometimes we often think that, like, when life gets difficult or we're under stressful situations, like, it almost, like, it brings the bad out of us. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, well, I was in a stressful situation. That's why I said that. Or I was, you know, under a lot of stress that week. That's why I responded that way. And I'm really sorry if this bothers you, but I have the firm conviction of it's under stressful, hard situations that it's your true self. Like, that's you! Like, that's not! Because that's who you are, and it's just that pressure and stress brings it out. Yes. Really. So instead of... And I use that. Like, if I find, like, anger starting to... <laughs> I'm not like, well, it was just a really hard week, and I didn't sleep a lot. So, no, it, it's... You know what? I was weak, and I was vulnerable. And so in my vulnerability, my filter was gone. <laughs> I had no intellectual filter to respond. That's really what it is. On our good days... We have enough emotional strength, fortitude, clarity to kind of negotiate and go, don't act that way, that's not right, that's not good. It's those places of weakness and vulnerability that really what's going on inside of us comes out, like we're seen, you know? (laughs) But anyway, in his hardest, most vulnerable, we didn't find this dude cursing, and we didn't find him even cursing the people that were doing it to him. What we actually found was an expression of love from his life. I mean, this is where, obviously, when you read Revelations where it says, loving not their lives unto the death, he obviously had a manifestation of love for Jesus, but also humanity and individuals. Because his response was, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And, and then he, he fell asleep when he had said this. I mean, for him to have such a response of compassion, rather, God, judge these people. You know, vindicate my death. You know, <laughs> that kind of a, it was nothing but pure motive and pure desire. And then it goes on in chapter 8 to say, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is interesting. It was actually only the apostles that remained in Jerusalem. The rest of the church And they have to. They're driven because of the persecution of Saul. And it says, A devout man carried Stephen um, to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. So the persecution actually causes the spreading of the gospel. They went everywhere preaching the word. So the word of the Lord exponentially increases because they're driven from Jerusalem. So they go to Samaria, they go to these other places. And this is actually what we're going to really focus on for the next few minutes. This is in verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. What we now see 
is we see citywide revival breaks out in Samaria. Philip goes, he preaches, and then it begins to talk about the unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice that they came out of many that were possessed. I mean, this goes on. It talks about Simon the sorcerer. I mean, the mass conversion, the healing. This is, when you study it, Samaria started receiving and experiencing a citywide revival. And this was the fruit of the persecution. This was the fruit of this man Saul tormenting believers and them being scattered. I mean, number one, let's just highlight what a phenomenal heart response from the church. That they don't get downcast. Really what we need desperately, and we're going to see this throughout this whole, path, this whole chapter, is our paradigm and our understanding of how God works. Which actually causes us, if we don't understand his ways, we, we respond wrongly to his doing. See, if we looked at it as, like, somehow God didn't answer our prayers, God didn't move on our behalf, like, beginning to misunderstand the process, or even why God allows it, could you imagine in modern-day Christianity, there would be such a downcast, heavy, discouraged, because we so don't understand the ways of the kingdom. We would see that as God didn't endorse me, God didn't vindicate me, God doesn't answer prayer, and it would turn into then, in our culture, in our society, a theological debate on God and prayer and how he works and how he, instead, they don't focus on all of that. They have such an understanding. I believe, I believe what it was is because they were a part of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they, did, they were delivered from that humanistic lens and mindset that a lot of us are, are captured by. And so instead, their response was, they go preaching Jesus everywhere they go. That's a heart that is unoffended. That is a heart that in the midst of every circumstance, you're able to respond in worship. You know what this is? This is such clarity upon their lives. They're not living in the fog of confusion of, I, I need five weeks or five months to get it clear, get it right, get it. It's, they had an understanding of the ways of God. And really what it was is that in, this, in the Old and in the New Testament, they, they were living in such a different reality than the, the God that we preach and the God that we understand and perceive of the common messages that are received in our culture. They had such a pure understanding of his ways that weren't based upon the preaching of success and prosperity, that, weren't, that were not based upon humanistic measures of how God moves and how we respond and even what, what, what are almost uh, is an indication of God's favor upon our lives, where we've measured it so differently. And really the way we've measured it is not biblically sound whatsoever. So citywide revival, and this, is, this highlights it here. So they, there's persecution, their response is preach Jesus everywhere. And then you highlight Philip's life, and he's preaching Jesus, and there's citywide revival that breaks out in Samaria. So now it's spreading. But this is what's actually crazy about this passage of scripture. Because I don't know about you, but if I was experiencing citywide revival, I think I'd probably want to camp out number one, because I've been praying for it for so long. I'd be like, <laughs> but you know what's crazy is this is what we actually find. So citywide revival is taking place, and then right after that, in verse 26, you'll find, I love this, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, arise, go towards the south, along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he's in Samaria, citywide revival. And basically, if you study the geography of that region, basically what the angel of the Lord was saying was, go on that road to the desert. 
and it's proven that he went a, a, about a 20-mile journey by foot. So, dude's in the middle of citywide revival, and he is the revival guy. You know what I mean? Like, he's like the, the guy with his head on the poster. I mean, they didn't have posters, but you know. He, like, his moment had come, you know? Like, God was using him. He was really the revivalist in that region. And the angel of the Lord says, go to the desert, basically, and go to Gaza. And he doesn't even tell him what to do. He, he's clueless. Philip don't know what's going on. And the amazing thing is, I, I mean, I don't know if Peter asked, and he, I mean, sorry, Philip asked and he didn't answer, but it literally says, so he arose and went. Come on. Okay, so the angel of the Lord comes to me, Bethany, and basically tells me to take a 20-mile journey north of here by foot. Okay, and what exactly, am, am I looking for something? Am I going to do something there? No clarity whatsoever. But revival's breaking out, and you're basically the pinnacle of it that the Holy Spirit's using. So, before we even move on <laughs> to any other points, actually, I should move on, <laughs> this is just crazy. Okay, so he arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch, a great authority, I have to like move really quickly, I'm just realizing we're running out of time. Um, so he basically, he goes, and while he goes, he actually runs into this man that he sees, and then he, the Spirit of the Lord says to him, go, uh, says to him, Philip, verse 29, go near and overtake his chariot. So he goes, and what he does is in the middle of 20 miles into the desert, while he's all by himself there, he goes and he basically evangelizes this eunuch. The eunuch hears the word of the Lord, he understands and he perceives, he professes Jesus as the Lord, and then says, can I get back to Because he hears, he, he literally, it says right here that Peter opened his mouth and beginning, with the beginning of scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He, he revealed Jesus through the scriptures. And then the eunuch basically says, I want to be saved and I'd like to be baptized too. Can we do that as well? And then I don't know why or how, but it says in the middle of the desert, there's water. Water right there. How convenient. Now you can be baptized. I mean, the whole thing is actually very supernatural and extraordinary. But really what it speaks to us is, honestly, I'm going to say this to you. In our day, in our culture, and in our society, this right here blows like, and it's interesting because it's along the same theme of what we were just touching upon earlier, but it's like the death blow to our contemporary understanding of ministry. Because if you turn on any of our Christian uh, television stations or listen to any of our kind of premier teachings in our culture in our day of Christians, really like the whole goal of everything is like moving from obscurity to greatness. It's moving from your small, I mean, honestly, because I go to the meetings with pastors and leaders and sit in all the lectures, it's like how to go from your small ministry and blow it up huge to be a stadium gal. You know, like you can stand on stadiums and preach. I mean, everything is kind of like the move from small to great. Go from obscurity to success. And everything is the measuring line of kind of where you rank based upon what you're doing. And basically, you have Peter, who is like hosting the citywide revival. And, and the angel of the Lord comes to him, and he says, go to the desert. That's all he says. Just go to the desert. I mean, at that point, he didn't know if he was going to go camp out in the desert for the next 40 years. He didn't know if he had an assignment. But this is what you see in Philip's life. 
This is what you see. He was not after even the revival. He wasn't after the results. He wasn't after his life being on display. He wasn't even after how God was using him. You know what he was after? I only want to please you. I only want to please you. If that means go to Samaria and Holy Spirit blows up, that's awesome. But if that means go to the desert and simply obey the angel of the Lord, then that is awesome too. Because wherever he leads me, my success is not defined by the crowd or by the fruitfulness or what's happening around me. My success is defined. Have I honored you? Have I obeyed your voice? Have I followed your commands? Have I responded when you spoke? How many of us would have said, I'm not going to the desert because this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been waiting for. It's revival in the manifestation. I'm speaking and demons are coming out. I'm speaking and the, and the unclean spirits are being delivered. Why would I move? That makes no intellectual sense. Intellectually, that is gone. Once you hit glory cloud, who moves? But you want to know something? Philip had the understanding that it was not in a geographical location, and it wasn't even who the people were, and whether they would respond to him, whether they would honor him, whether they would endorse him. Philip had the understanding it was within him. The manifest glory of God would go with him wherever he went. And if he went to the next city, and that if he was rejected, that it was not measuring the success and the identity of him as a man. He had no fear of the results. No fear of how others would judge what he was doing or where he was going. See, that's the place of confidence. That's the place, and this is where all of us need to come, where we are so tuned in with, with the Holy Spirit himself that it's not, I found my niche and I'm being endorsed and everyone's praising me in Samaria because I'm the man of God. It's you know the Holy Spirit so well and intimately inwardly that that is all you care about hosting. And whatever the next season looks like, whether it looks like fruitfulness or barrenness, our only concern is I only want to please you. See, this is the issue. Like, you look at the life of David Brainerd. <clears throat> how many people would measure his life as being unsuccessful? I mean, how many of his personal friends... I, 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 can, I, I can't say I can guarantee. <laughs> I, I wish I could guarantee. But I strongly believe... I'm sure he even had people saying, But David, you're an anointing teacher. You could. Why don't you? But David, why are you spending this many hours in prayer... You could have this opportunity or be on this circuit. But David, see, oftentimes these lives, there's such amazing potential upon them. And oftentimes people don't even understand why they choose such a, a narrow, lowly way. But what if David Brainerd, just speculating, what if he left that posture of prayer? What if he left that place of intercession that he knew for the Native Americans? What if he left that place? Ultimately, it was, it was obedience to his calling. He was obeying the call of God upon his life. What if he left that for a momentary 
or immediate success and prosperity in the eyes of man or even in his own life? What if he left that? You know what I bet you? I bet you he could have seen a, a limited amount or a portion of success, but the longevity and the even eternal fruitfulness of how he sowed his life would have been limited. It's this principle in the Word of God. There's 30, 60, and there's a hundredfold. There's the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will. And often what we do is we take the 30 and we kind of go, well, I can get immediate results. I can get some immediate gratification for my flesh that wants to see something. If, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of ministry of what we do in the United States, it's to gratify our fleshly need to see something. Mm-hmm. I want to see something. I want to see something grow quick. I want to see some momentum now. I want to, you know, it's that place that our flesh longs to know that I'm doing it or it's making it or other people are going to praise me or it's got to look right publicly. The website's got to look right. Like everything, our image has to look right. Versus saying, I want the hundredfold fruitfulness. I don't care about time. I don't care about delays. And I don't even care about the process. I'm after the hundredfold fruitfulness. And I believe David Brainerd, although what his life may have been declared as wasted, he died in his early 30s. He died in his early 30s. So his life, according to man, could have been measured as wasted. But now you have the diaries of David Brainerd across the earth, inspiring men and women to the vocation, the lifestyle of prayer, and the understanding of intercession. You have him changing the understanding and expression even of our role in the place of prayer. And this came from a man that basically he lived his life with the posture like Philip knew of saying, I only want to please you. That's what we see from Peter's life. I, I'm, why do I keep saying Peter? Because the whole beginning was Peter of Acts. But from Philip's life, that's exactly what we see is we see his willingness to go anywhere and to do anything was based upon this understanding of I only want to please you, no matter what that looks like. Um, you know what, I actually, I really want to move into, um, I mean, then he evangelizes and he gets saved, and then it's awesome because, like, Philip is translated. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Philip is translated. And then we actually, the whole next chapter is we move into Saul's conversion. Saul gets saved. The guy that's killing, persecuting the church, he gets radically saved. Unbelievable testimony. Um, but really, I don't want to take away from, number one, where we're at, but number two, I don't think we even have time to do chapter nine justice. But what I want to do is just what we've just discussed um, in this short time here. You know, while we were singing, there was a certain um, chorus that Daryl and Will were singing, and while we were singing, it was talking about, I don't even remember, but it was something along the lines of, um, kind of, you work all things together for my good. I don't know how many of you were in here for that chorus, but... You work all things together for my good. And it was talking about when the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid. And though there's pain in the night, joy comes with the morning. But this song, when we were singing it, what I was thinking was, I was like, this is so the confidence of knowing the heart of God. It's, It's the confidence of knowing his heart for you. To be able to say that when the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid. There's no place of fear, there's no place of anxiety, because we're so convinced and persuaded of the heart of God, that his heart is good towards us. That no matter what the circumstance, how difficult the circumstance may be, even if it looks like everything is 
stacked up against you, that God's intention for you is good. That what he's wanting to work out in the process is good. That what he's looking, his intention towards you is good. And what that is, is number one, that's trusting his heart, but that's also having confidence in his heart towards you. And really, it speaks even as far as Philip being willing to follow him anywhere. That's being so convinced of the heart of God. In his, I'm going to be honest with you. The humanistic tendency that we live in, how many of us would even, he, number one, hear or see the angel of the Lord telling us to do the 20-mile journey off by foot? But what it is, is we have such a place of rationalization and humanism. that, And I'm going to just tell you, when it, when it comes to that, it's actually where we feel as though our decisions are best for ourselves. Mm-hmm. That somehow I have to look out for my own life and my own future. That God's not looking out for me. Mm-hmm. That somehow he's not fully invested in the outcome and I have to make it happen. I have to work it. Or my decisions are best for me and I'm looking out for my best interest. But it's having that place of complete confidence and rest that he works all things together for your good. So that you don't have to strive to make it happen or to make it successful. But that you can rest in his heart towards you. But what I want to do is when we were singing that song, I was just thinking, I was like, my goodness, when we just come to that place of knowing his heart towards us, it's a game changer. It changes everything. It changes our, I think, our level of being able to hear from him. Because we eagerly desire to hear from him because we, we trust what he has to say. But then it also changes how we respond to him. Because we'll willingly follow him anywhere, whether it be to Samaria, to a citywide revival, or on the road to Gaza, and the desert place, in complete solitude and obscurity. I mean, the counsel of man would have been, do not leave the hot spot of revival. You might miss your window of opportunity for your lifelong open door to ministry. You're going to go and abandon all of this and go Gaza? You know what it was? You know what that was? That response was, I only want to obey you. I only want to obey you. No matter what it looks like. I'm going to be honest with you. I think every single one of us in our life's journey, that the Holy Spirit is so jealous for that place in our lives, that there's some of us that will go round and round and round and round certain mountains until we come to that place of going, I trust you, and I only want to obey you. I remember I was 18 years old when I moved to Michigan to live there. And it was one of the most painful experiences of my life, because through high school, um, my mother, for those of you that don't know, Crystal was actually part of the youth ministry that she led. Um, My mother was a phenomenal youth pastor. From the time we were like 16, she'd be like, okay, you're up to preach. Go ahead. Your turn to preach. And we'd be like, okay, I don't have a word, but here we go. I mean, she just put us in awkward, uncomfortable, kind of like Daryl. I mean, Daryl got saved off the street. And she was like, okay, you're the worship leader. <laughs> I mean, Lord only knows what he was still doing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but in the process, you know, the glory of God came and sanctified him so it all worked out. But I mean, honestly, I stood up having no idea how to preach. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to torment you all now because my mom said, I have to preach. <laughs> but what she did, I mean, we ended up seeing an extraordinary move of God. I mean, from a podunk town in, in New Hampshire that had 15 kids in the youth group, like overnight it grew to like 80. And we're talking 80 kids getting like at one night 
50 getting saved, demons flying out of them. <laughs> I mean, extraordinary. The newspapers writing about it and saying, is this what revival looked like in the olden days? I mean, just crazy stuff. But what happened was, I graduated high school. And the Lord opened an opportunity for me to go to Michigan. And I went to Michigan. And I'm going to be honest with you. I hated the fact that I was in Michigan, away from this extraordinary move of God, and really away from my, my best friend, my mom. Um, I was miserable, but you know what happened in Michigan is I, I was going to ministry school. I did not like the ministry school at the time. This is being recorded. Uh, <laughs> I did not like the ministry school. I just did not like where God had me, to be very honest. It was painful. I nannied for five children. They offered me a certain amount of pay, and I felt like the Lord told me to accept less, like to tell them they needed to pay me less to free up their own finances. So I struggled a lot financially that year. There was a lot of dynamics, but this is what I'm going to say. I came to such a place of hearing the Lord, communing with the Lord, even cultivating a life of prayer, that finally I came to such a place of contentment of just going, okay, if in order to stay here, meaning like not physically, but where I was with the Lord, I remember saying to the Lord, if in order to stay here, what I found with you, if it means staying in Michigan, I'll stay here the rest of my life. Because I had found such a place of contentment and such a place of being satisfied in the presence of God. It was no longer about the extraordinary ministry that was birthed in New Hampshire. It was no longer about even my role in that ministry. It was no longer about anything outward. I was a nanny who, and I'm going to be honest with you, I slaved. I cared for five very small children day and night, night and day. I cooked their meals. I cleaned their house. I homeschooled them, and I did my classes at night and did all my work and all of that. It was painful. But in the midst of that, number one, I can honestly tell you, I learned what it was to commune with the Lord continually, abide in his presence, but also to cultivate that, that kind of life in a desert place where no one was nurturing it. And to be honest with you, not only was no one nurturing it, there was even a measure of persecution for the choice to fast and things like that. I mean, it was hard. It was hard. I was completely misunderstood, but the Lord used it. And I came to such a place of saying, I don't care ever what my outward life looks like. I don't care ever what it amounts to or what's seen from the eyes of man. It's that place of learning of living before the eyes of God alone. That place that you live before him and him alone, that's where you're satisfied. That's where you're content. And ultimately, that's where your success lies. In and even finding joy in the place of the wilderness. I can't tell you how many people have shared with me like really painful like desert wilderness seasons of that they've been in. And the angst of my heart, whenever I hear them kind of like, I don't know when the season's going to end. I don't know when God's going to release me or endorse me. Or I always sit there kind of going, you're going to look back someday and think this is the most treasured. It's those most painful seasons that really become the most treasured in our lives, in the most, almost those most difficult seasons where he is revealed in a way, and, and when our heart finds refuge in him, that they become the most treasured seasons in our life. But really, what I, kind of why I was bringing this back to the song is it's that place of confidence in the heart of God, of that though the oceans rage, I, I don't have to be afraid. It's that place like Philip, of saying that whether it's in the place of fruitfulness in the land of abundance, or whether it's in the desert place of barrenness or the physical desert of on the road to Gaza, in the obscurity to ministering to only one eunuch, 
that either one, before the eyes of God, it's whatever he deems is successful, and it's whatever he calls us to that we want. I just want us to respond to that place before the Lord of saying, and really what it is, it's a place of trust. Of saying, beyond my understanding or beyond what it appears as though physically to even other people, I only want to obey you. No matter where it brings me. No matter what it looks like. Whether it's obscurity or whether it's even in a public place. I mean, some of us, we would prefer the obscurity, because there's a place that we actually find contentment, and that being called to the public place is even more of a place of obedience, of going, okay, it's painful, but I'll obey. So it's either one, it's not one or the other, it's wherever the Lord is calling you. But for anybody that just feels as though they feel the stirring of the Holy Spirit to just respond to the Lord, of saying, God, I want that posture like Philip, to say, I only want to obey you. That's my desire, and that's my longing, no matter what it looks like, whether it's in marriage or in singleness. I mean, that's the road for some of us, is saying, God, even in those places of pain, whatever you choose for me, I only want to obey you. Whether it's in financial success or even in poverty, uh, I only want to obey you. So anybody that just wants to respond to that, let's stand to your feet, and we're going to pray together. regardless of even whether some of us would be called even into missions or martyrdom. But God, in life, we want to live with that kind of love and abandon before you. God, we ask, Lord, even now, Father, Lord, would you awaken our hearts, Lord, in love for you. And God, even that place, God, that in loving you, we trust your heart. Lord, in loving you, we know your heart is good towards us. Lord, that you work all things together for our good. God, we ask you right now, God, we say, Father, this issue of love, this issue of even abandonment that we see in Stephen, Father, that love was perfected. God, we ask, Father, would you make us those that would be a faithful witness, Lord, even unto the death, not because of our radicalism or how extreme we are, but because of violent love for you. God, we just say we want to fall more in love with Jesus. That that would be our life's ambition and our great aim. Lord, not what we build with our hands. Lord, not what the eyes of man see outwardly of our lives, but God, an inward place of love and devotion. God, I ask, Lord, even now, Lord, would you convict every single one of our hearts with the understanding of living before God and God alone. 
Lord, that with every decision, with every motive, that we do not stand before the eyes of man, but we stand before you and you alone. God, that even what man would uh, deem and judge, Lord, as worthless, what man would deem and judge, Lord, as a, a waste of time or a waste of life, God, we say we stand before you and you alone. And God, we only want to obey you. God, we want to follow you in life and follow you in death. God, we want to follow you in the places of prosperity and abundance. And Lord, even to the desert places. God, we ask, Lord, would you invoke in us the kind of love that follows you by a heart response. Lord, even when it doesn't make sense to our minds. Lord, that our heart is fully convinced and persuaded. Lord, in trusting you. We just want to pray individually for anyone that just even feels like specifically that issue of that you almost feel like you need to come to a place of trusting God's heart. His heart towards you. That he does work all things together for your good and he fights on your behalf. We just want to minister. If you want to come forward, if anybody needs individual prayer concerning that specifically, we just want to pray into that before we move on.
it up now for anyone that has any type of prayer request or prayer need or even feels alone in their heart and their mind, disconnect from God. Or maybe the life pressures of life are pressing around you. Where there's choices to be made, you don't know specifically where God's calling you or where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. So many different avenues in front of you and you want peace in your heart and there's anxiety. I feel like there's more like that here that do have anxiety, that have options before them. And they want to know what God's saying to them. I just want to come up. I want you guys to come up and we want to agree with you guys. And just minister the heart of God to you. We just want to open it up for any prayer requests and also specifically that.
Father, we just bless your name, God. We worship you, God. We just thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. God, we thank you for leading and guiding us and being committed to us, Lord. And we love you, Jesus. And we just pray that you bless hearts, God. You would just continue to stir, provoke, and move us, God. In 